Episode 176 of Coming Up Next, the podcast with Michelle Law is about to come your way, my friends. And if you'd like to find the previous 175 podcast rambles, you can find them all for free at comingupnext.com.au. What do I ask in return? Well, I ask for nothing in return. What could you do in return? You could subscribe to Coming Up Next. You could leave a five-star rating. You could also leave a review. That's only if you want to, though. All the episodes are going to be freely available to you regardless of whether you do that. afternoon my friends good morning or good evening whenever you're listening to coming up next the podcast welcome to another episode one of the best of the year as we round out 2018 we've only got a few left where's the year gone where has the year gone that's what everyone says and I guess it's true I'm back in Melbourne sun is shining pretty good to be in Melbourne over the summer I gotta say as much as I enjoy the time that I get to spend in London the work that I get to do over there and the work that I get to do wherever I'm working there's just something about being Melbourne over the summer that really I don't know just comes alive Uh, maybe it's the nostalgia factor of having grown up in Melbourne feeling all of those senses smells the sun on your skin, I don't know, going down to the Mornington Peninsula. It's just a good time, I guess is where I'm going with this. Big thank you to my guest from last week, Philippa Boyens, the Academy Award winning screenplay writer, screenplay writer, screenwriter. Uh, She won an Oscar for her film adaptation of Lord of the Rings Return of the King in 2004 with Peter Jackson. She actually adapted all the Lord of the Rings books to films with him and she's got a film out at the moment mortal engines again with peter jackson which is in cinemas in australia right now check your local listings and uh, before you do that head to comingupnext.com.au and check out my interview with her episode 175 that was which means this week episode 176 and michelle law is my guest michelle has an incredible body of work uh, as a writer as well, ranging from television, web series, uh, theatre. She's actually got her show, Single Asian Female, which uh, was up uh, last year. It's coming back again. You can check out when that's playing. Uh, Well, I can tell you it's playing from the 16th of February to the 9th of March. But for more information, head to 2019.laboite.com.au forward slash shows. You can find all the information you need there. But before you do that, why don't you sit back and enjoy the next 45 or so minutes as Michelle and I unpack her life uh, in the Australian film and television industry. previously living in Brisbane. Yeah, so I um, grew up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland and then I moved to Brisbane for the and I was there for about 10 years uh, and then I moved to Sydney. Right. And you grew up as one of five siblings. 
Yes. The youngest. So one of five and yeah, I, I'm the youngest in the family. Wow. So, you know, one of the things that I speak with people about is if they remember the first time that they did what they now do professionally. Uh, I suppose writing may be a little bit different because you're probably not writing from a very young age, but do you remember <laughs> what the family dynamic was like, I suppose, because your brother Ben is a creative as well. He's got this show mm -hmm. based on your family. Um, so I wonder if, if there was that kind of uh, thread of creativity through your childhood. Yeah, um, it's interesting because none of, well, neither of our parents um, have a creative job or vocation. Um, my dad always owned restaurants, so Chinese and Thai restaurants. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom taking care of the five of us. Um, I think they, they're both very creative people. So my dad, I think he actually got into a Sydney art school back when he first migrated to Australia and he chose not to take it. I think because he sort of realized at the time that it wouldn't be very lucrative. Um, and my mum has always been a really creative person. Um, she has a very journalistic personality. So I think that was always in our genes, I guess. Um, so growing up, um, didn't really have that sort of creative background, but certainly we had a lot of creative outlets. Like my parents were always encouraging us to draw and paint and write and all of those things and um, Ben and I especially like we were always really big readers and we grew up reading a lot of books from a young age um, so I think that was sort of the start of it because I think you can't be a writer unless you're quite a voracious reader as well and you sort of read far and wide um, so that was where I guess it started being a reader and in terms of first memories of writing um, probably when I was pre-teen and I was sort of just making up little stories and fantastical tales inspired by the books that I was reading at the time. Um, I sort of grew up when the Harry Potter books were being written. So I was lucky in the sense that every time a book came out, I was the same age as Harry and his, and his friends. <laughs> um, yeah, so each year it was just like a really exciting thing. Um, so I grew up with those stories being really important to me and sort of inspiring me to, to write my own things. Um, but I, I guess I didn't see it as something that I could pursue professionally until, um, I saw my brother doing it and, and he'd studied at university and I was like, okay, so this could be a legitimate, um, career. And, um, at the same time I wrote a story for an anthology called Growing Up Asian in Australia and there was an open call out for stories for that. Um, so I wrote something not thinking anything would happen with it and um, the editor Alice Pung ended up really liking it and publishing it. So yeah, I never grew up wanting to be a writer. It was always something I enjoyed um, but I didn't think it was it would be something that I would pursue. Do you remember what, uh, like what some of those stories that you were writing were about? Um, one of them was almost like a complete ripoff of Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't fan fiction. Um, no, I, no, I think I was too young to even realise what fan fiction was. I just sort of wanted to create something that was that 
imaginative and um, otherworldly. And the other thing was, I think it was another fantasy series and it was set in this world that was sort of quite allegorical um, in terms of stories to do with the Bible. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, Maybe it was we went to a Lutheran school, but our family wasn't religious. So I think maybe those stories just sort of stuck with me. Um, And then I guess it wasn't until I was in high school when we were sort of encouraged to write um, fiction grounded in realism and short stories and things like that, um, that I started writing different stuff. But I also remember being really interested in um, performative writing and, and dialogue because we'd have a yearly talent show at our school. And I remember this was before the internet had really taken off and just watching films that I loved and pausing it every five seconds and just writing down all the dialogue so I could have a script on hand. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. remarkable. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of just like my um, my nerdier pastimes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think other people were out playing sports and hanging out and going to parties and stuff, and I was like, I'm going to watch Disney's Mulan and stop it every five seconds. <laughs> Transcribe and it. And just like just cast people in it and it never happened because it took me so long to write the dialogue. I think I only got maybe like half an hour into the film and I was like, this is too much. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a very hefty task you set for yourself. <laughs> that's it. But me and my cousins used to watch like the Lion King or something and we would each choose a character and because we watched it so many times, we would like <laughs> know all of the dialogue. And so, oh, that's so good. we would yeah, we would basically play out the film in real time with the film playing. <laughs> Quite ridiculous. <laughs> that's so great. I think that's such a huge childhood thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And you grew up as well with alopecia. So I could imagine mm-hmm. that there was like an element of wanting to... Well, I don't know, maybe I, sh- I shouldn't make an assumption. Was there an element of wanting to um, be not invisible, but like kind of just that a kind of escapism that you would get from writing and creating your own worlds? Yeah, I think definitely. Um, and because I wasn't really writing too much at that age, it was more reading that I got quite heavily into. Um, and... Yeah, especially during that time at the start of high school when I was losing my hair, I guess my world became quite insular and isolated. Um, So I sort of withdrew into myself a lot. Um, And I think think maybe in some ways having those sort of social limitations um, and you're, you're, you're spending so much time on your own that you're sort of forced to be a bit more imaginative and have more of an active imagination in that sense. Um, so it could have been helpful in that way in terms of my work. And were your parents uh, encouraging of your creative exploits or were they wanting you to move into something maybe a bit more a- academic? What was that for you? Yeah, I think I was really lucky um, in that sense because my parents weren't really traditional like tiger parents or anything like that. Um, My dad just, uh, like a tiger mom, like in in Chinese culture, it's sort of those mums who really push their children to excel in, you know, academia or instrument 
instrument playing or um, what have you. It's just sort of those helicopter parents that right. um, are quite relentless in pushing <laughs> you. Um, so my dad had a very brief period where he wanted me to be an anchor woman. An anchor and woman. I remember asking, yeah, and I was just <laughs> like, this is like, this is so left of center. Like, why an anchor woman? And he's like, oh, I just think you'd be good at it. And my mum just really encouraged us to do whatever we wanted to do and made us happy. And she was always really supportive of me pursuing creative arts. And in high school, I was involved in so many extracurricular things. Like I did school drama and I was on the magazine committee and on the school formal committee and I was a student leader. So I was doing all of those things. and she was very happy to support me to do that. And I think um, the younger kids in my family, especially, we all chose creative pursuits. So I think by that stage, they were just sort of happy to go with the flow. You mentioned earlier that it wasn't really until you saw your brother um, actually professionally pursuing, uh, I guess, a creative lifestyle that you felt like that was something that you could potentially pursue as well. That was definitely the case in terms of writing. Um, I knew when I finished school I wanted to do something creative. Um, So I was tossing up between doing acting, visual arts or writing. Um, And then I remember chatting to to my brother and, and him saying that writing would be a good choice because you could consolidate all of those interests into writing because it's really the genesis of a lot of different art forms. So it was sort of more practical in that sense. And from there you applied to QUT to study screenwriting? Mm -hmm. I applied for QUT to do just a broader creative writing course um, because I I went into it thinking that I'd be a novelist and um, I didn't really think of screenwriting. Like it was something that I was always interested in, but it wasn't a main point of focus for me when I started. And so what, what year was it that you went to QUT? Uh, I think it was 2008. Right. So from 2008, I guess, through to seeing something like Homecoming Queens coming to fruition in, what was that, I guess, about 2017 that you shot that? Yeah, so we shot parts of it in... Yeah, 2017, and I think later parts, um, 2018. Right. Was, was Bloom as your short, first short film in 2013? Yeah, so that was the first short film I'd written. I did one course at uni that was uh, like an intro to screenwriting. And at the same time, I was also working, I actually sort of fell into screenwriting because I was working for a production company in Queensland called Hoodlum. Um, and I was working on a show of theirs writing multimedia content and multi-platform content. Um, and then when I was at uni, I wrote Bloomers and um, while doing extra work for different companies and things like that. So was that just like copy work that you were doing or was it other work? Um, it was writing interactive media. So for this particular show, they had a website for the show and for fans where they could sort of go online and find extra material uh, if they were, you know, 
about the characters or stories. So my job, one of my jobs was writing um, writing the graphic novels for one of the characters who was an artist. Um, so I essentially went away and would write the scripts for these graphic novels. Or um, later there were like these little web series versions or extra clips of the characters that you didn't see on the show. So I'd write things like that as well. Um, so it was very much screenwriting, but um, just not the traditional forms of it. Right. Did you feel as though it was kind of, I guess, an extension of your education in a sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, and it was really great to have that out of uni experience because I think definitely when you do an arts degree, um, people aren't so interested in your GPA or your grades. Um, they're more interested in your portfolio and your CV and, and what you've actually done. What was your feeling, I suppose, when you finished at university in the sense of what did you feel like you, you'd learned or, or acquired? Because um, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion, or I have a lot of discussion with people about the kind of the merits of going to university to study mm. a creative subject versus just getting a real life kind of experience. Yeah, I think it definitely accelerated my learning process. Um, and it made me very interested in literary writing, which was my background. Um, so for me, uni was really beneficial in that sense because I don't think you necessarily need to do a degree to make creative work, but I think it certainly helps and fast tracks things. Um, yeah, so, so I enjoyed it and I thought it, was, thought it was good for my trajectory, personally speaking. Um, yeah, but I came out of it thinking that I would be like a, you know, one of a, no, a lofty novelist type of person. And then I came out of it and I started writing a book and then I just didn't understand why it was working. And then I realized that I was just really miserable. Right. <laughs> and it took me, I think it's really common when people come out of an arts degree and they sort of float around for a year or so trying to figure out what they're doing. Um, and I definitely had that. And it took a lot of um, unlearning because I think you need to learn the rules in order to break them. So I'd learned the rules and now this was my period of breaking them and just figuring out what actually made me happy as a writer and what I actually wanted to do. Um, and I remember reading a friend's blog at the time and I just found it, I just thought she was so funny and I really missed that and I missed being funny and having a comedic voice. And I guess it made me realize that, um, you know, having a literary voice is fine, but it's not the be all and end all. And there are, there's a place for all types of writing. What sort of uh, rules did you feel like you had learned that you wanted to break? I think a lot of it had to do with the writers that I was taught and the writers that were prescribed on the, on the reading list. And a lot of them, were older male writers um, and I thought that I had to um, emulate that voice in order to be taken seriously, I think. There's a lot of female authors, you know, they just get branded as chiclet, which can sort of be a derogatory term at times. Or um, he, people tend to take you less seriously. So um, I, I really undertook a lot of self-education, seeking out female writers and female comedy writers and seeing 
that um, though that was a legitimate pathway and that um, it was something that I enjoyed and was worth pursuing and it, it, it was what I wanted to do and that was all that was important. So when you started writing Bloomers, I mean, I guess that, you know, there's, there's obviously a, a big difference between writing uh, a book or, or a novel and writing a screenplay. What was the process like of, of putting pen to paper on Bloomers and was it something that was very personal or was it something that was a bit more of like an escape? I think technically speaking, it was pretty, it was like a revelatory experience for me because I really think quite visually um, and I really love writing dialogue. So for me, you writing in that form was really exciting and it made sense to me um, and the way that my brain works. Um, in terms of the story itself, it was sort of inspired by, you know, sex ed classes in high school um, and just classes that I'd had where they'd separate the guys from the girls and, and tell them very different things about puberty and growing up and all of that. Uh, so I wanted to draw on those experiences and, and just growing up I was really informed by, you know, Todd Salon's sort of oddball characters and dated aesthetics so um, that was something I wanted to bring into the script as well um, so for me it was really exciting because it was just sort of another way for me to create a world and create a story and then to give that to someone else and see them see their interpretation of it. Was the process of handing it over was that a challenging process or did you feel quite comfortable in that? Um, I was pretty happy with it. I, I really like collaborating with people and directors because I enjoy seeing how they can how they envision the script and the characters and I and I love and I love it when they surprise me with an interpretation and they make it better than I could have imagined. Um, and it's quite nice, you know, when you're doing a lot of literary work, it's quite lonely and you don't really have anyone to bounce off. Yeah. Um, whereas when you're working with a director or a co-writer and you're both sort of feeling stuck, you can just sort of um, figure it out just back and forth it for a bit and, and not feel as if you're going crazy by yourself. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So was it something that you'd, you wrote and then you sought a producer and a director to collaborate with or was did someone say, I want to produce something? Do you have anything that you've written or that you want to write? So before I had bloomers made i had it written as part of that uni course and then i signed to an agency quite early on when i was doing some work on the family law the first season um so i signed with an agent during that time What's and then the, she, what work were you doing for them for family law um i was working on story development and then and early treatments of um the episodes and scene breakdowns and things like that right yeah, um, and we were in the writer's room for the first season as well. Great. Um, so I signed with an agent then, and she said, oh, do you have any work, any short films or anything that you've written that I could sort of shop around to people? And then she brought it to a director that she knew of um, named Corrie Chen, um, and she thought that we'd have a very, that we had a very similar sense of humour and aesthetic. And so she professionally match made us and then the rest has sort of been history and we've been working together for about seven years now. 
It's a pretty uh, incredible, I guess, professional matchmaking. Yeah, <laughs> it was very lucky. We were so we were both incredibly suspicious right. because. <laughs> um, <laughs> So our agent hadn't, our agent who's now both of our agents hadn't signed Corey then, but just knew of Corey's work um, when Corey was um, had just come out of BCA, and um, she set us up, and we were both like, mm, "Is this just because we're both Asian?" <laughs> and we were so suspicious, and I immediately went and googled her and was looking at her work, and I was like, oh, "Okay, so she's not a hack." Mm. And then I remember she read my script and was emailing me. And I think one of her first emails was like, okay, now that I know you're not a complete psychopath, be great to talk, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so both of us were very much um, very tentative when we first met each other. Um, but I think it was very apparent quite early on that, um, our agent was pretty on the money in terms of sense of humor and sensibility. Um, and I think we just both complement each other because when it comes to working, there's very little ego involved and it's just about making the project as best as it can be. You mentioned uh, in that, you know, the, the suspicion around being paired up because you were both Asian. Was that, mm. was, was there a feeling like, you know, you don't want to be put in this box because I guess, you know, Australian culture or there are a lot of uh, Western cultures that have the tendency to kind of put people in, in a particular box to fit a particular agenda. Has there been a mm. sense as you've kind of been coming up through the film and TV industry that that's something that could happen, does happen, or is it something that you feel is, is changing? What's been your experience? Yeah, I think it's definitely always in the back of your mind anytime you're someone who identifies as being from a minority background in whatever sense. Um, there's always this feeling that, you know, you, you got this because you're, you know, diverse or you got this because you're a minority or a marginalised person. So there's always that in the back of your head and you also yet don't want to be pigeonholed by that writer who does Asian stories. Um I think things are getting better as more people from diverse backgrounds are creating things for the screen industry and and the, and theater and all of that. Um, so as more people are rising up through the ranks, it's becoming less of a concern. Um, but definitely, it's something that, especially in the Asian Australian community, I know people um, get stressed out by. And I think because Corey and I are so aware of that. I guess it helps that we can band together to create work that is sort of centered on just making stories that we want to make and stories that are authentic and aren't necessarily to do with, I don't know. I Definitely Asian identity is a part of our work and it's a huge component of it. But at the same time, it, we feel like it doesn't define us. So I guess the fact that we have that shared ideology, it, it makes it easier making work and moving forward. Yeah, like you're, you're telling universal stories that happen to be about Asian values or Asian identity. Yeah, so they're universal but also um, specific, which is I think is the key to um, key to authentic storytelling or, or however you want to call it.
When you started, were you trying to write, for a lack of better term, white people's stories, or were you were you aware of the fact that there was this kind of whitewash on Australian television and, and films, and so you were trying to write your own stories, or was there just no awareness? I think it was a bit of both, um, and maybe a bit of unconscious work towards both of those things. So when I started working early on with that production company before I'd written Bloomers. Um, definitely when it came to characters and building characters, I really pushed for Asian Australian representation. But then when it came to Bloomers, I remember writing the protagonist and deliberately making her white because I felt like no one would watch it otherwise. Um, and I think that was a good choice because it, it meant that more people did see it and it wasn't just um, it wasn't just sort of assumed that it was an ethnic story or just a story that was made for a particular group in society. Um, so I think I did whitewash myself in the beginning <laughs> and I wasn't even conscious of it. I just thought that it was a smart thing to do in terms of... Um, making the story as accessible to people as possible. But I think as I've gotten older, I sort of have called myself out on that. I think, and I think naturally there's a kind of uh, shift towards wanting to tell more personal stories as you get a bit older mm. as well. Yeah. So what was the process like of writing single Asian female for the stage a couple of years ago? Yeah, um, that was quite an extended process. I'd never written a play before. And I remember there was an open call out for the Lotus program, which was running, being run by CAAP. And I always was interested in writing theatre, but I guess, again, coming from a literary background, I didn't see how there, had, there would be opportunities for it. Um, and often when you apply for workshops and things, you need to have had prior experience or they're quite expensive. Um, so this was an opportunity um, you know, it was it was free and um, you didn't need to have any prior playwriting experience. So I just thought, you know, I have to apply because it's just an incredible opportunity. Um, so there was one open round with maybe 20 or 30 people in each state. And with each successive round, um, they sort of shortlisted the groups depending on if they had a solid project in mind or if they wanted to develop a particular work. Um, so I progressed through each of those stages and, and got to the point where it was just a small group of us in Queensland. And we'd get together, I think, every month and just workshop the plays that we were working on. Um, and I was fortunate in the sense that we were working in a rehearsal space at Le Bois Theatre Company in Brisbane. Um, and they were sort of following the trajectory of the play, of my play, because our group had done developmental readings for it and so if people had had the opportunity to hear what the work would be like. Um, so they were interested in the play and wanted to commission it um, before I'd finished it. So I, I was lucky in that I sort of had that streamlined trajectory of developing the work with support of an organisation and mentor figures um, and theatre and industry professionals and then getting to have the support of a theatre and a dramaturg and, and pushing it to make it a full-length piece. So I think that process maybe took about four or so years. So 
um, it was definitely done in stages. It wasn't something that that was quick or um, straightforward. Was there like a frustration or a kind of tedium or were you just like, this is just the process? Um, no, there wasn't a, a sense of tedium, I guess, because I'd never done it before. So I had no, no sense of how long it was supposed to take. And I didn't have any preconceptions of what it meant to write a play. So it was all very new to me. And so when it came to opening night, was there, was there this sense of relief? Were you nervous? What was it like seeing your show up on stage, knowing how far it had come from when you started? Um, I think there was more relief when, I, when the play was actually done and then when I was seeing actors in the rehearsal rooms. That was really exciting. I think because I'd spent so much time with the actors and our creative team had gotten quite close, by the time opening night ticked over, I was more excited for audiences to see it because I'd seen it myself um, in the rehearsal room. Um, so I was more excited than anything. I think it's natural to be nervous and we were all pretty nervous as well. But it was mostly excitement. What, what's, it, what's it been like for you to see, I guess, yourself in these various iterations played either, you know, in the family law or homecoming queens, I suppose, you know, in single Asian female. I'm sure there's at least one character that's based on Michelle. Um, <laughs> so what's it been like for you to sort of see yourself fictionalised in this way? Um, I guess it's different every time. Um, it's... Uh, there were certainly moments of worry, especially with Homecoming Queens. The character of Michelle is quite different to me in real life. Um, so the character in Michelle, she's written to be, she's written and performed to be quite a selfish person and to be distancing herself from Chloe because Chloe was sick, whereas um, in reality, Chloe and I became friends when they became sick. Um, so there was a fear for me that people would assume that that was what I was like in person. Um, but I think I had good practice with the family law um, because my dad said something quite, um, it made a lot of sense at the time because he hasn't read the book and he, he hasn't, he's only seen parts of the TV show. And um, he was telling Ben that, you know, I trust that audience members will will watch or watch this or read the book and know that this is just a version of the truth and it's your interpretation of the truth and if that's what you feel like you need to perform like pre present then I totally support that and I trust that other people are, are, are smart enough to realize that and I think they totally are I think it's just putting a lot of faith in the audience um and knowing that they know that they're just character representations when it came to writing Homecoming Queens and actually starting to put that together, was that something that you felt like was just, I guess, uh, something that you needed to express? Did Corey say, let's, let's make a show? What was the process for that? Yeah, um, the process was that Chloe, the co-creator, and I, um, we became quite close friends quickly because um, they were diagnosed with breast cancer when they were 22. Um, wow. I say they because they're non-binary. Yeah. Um, so I think 22 was when they were diagnosed and then everything happened quite quickly. And we became friends after that and really 
bonded over this shared experience of having chronic illness uh, and being a young person. So we'd often go to parties um, thrown by people our age and always leave quite early and sort of commiserate in their car about how, you know, there wasn't much out there in terms of TV or film that represented our experience. Um, and we knew that there were heaps of young, sick people out there um, who were probably isolated emotionally and physically in the same way. Um, so we'd sort of jokingly say, you know, it'd be great one day if there was a show and what if we made that? Ha ha ha. And then in the very early stages when we were just talking about the idea, um, I approached Corey because by that stage we'd been working together for so long. And I was like, what do you think of this idea? And then she very early on came, came on board with development in terms of writing a Bible and fleshing out the characters in the world. Um, so it was the three of us and then we brought on producers um, and it sort of went from there. Did you imagine when you started creating it that, that it would have the sort of life that it's had and, and, and affect people in the way that it has? really um I think we were very I think when you start any creative project you're quite hopeful about the future of that project and the sort of effect it will have on people but I guess because I've I'm so used to projects being developed and then nothing coming of them that I didn't want to go into it expecting too much um and you know film projects can take years and years to make so I didn't really have any expectations in that regard so everything that happened um, once the show was released, I was really happy and grateful for. Um, and I wasn't surprised because I knew that a lot of people would connect to the stories because they'd been through similar things. Um, but I was really, I was really surprised by how many people got in touch and um, that it affected them in that way. How significant has it become for you or has it always been to, you know, use your art, use this kind of this, this creativity to say something meaningful? Um, you know, we touched on earlier, you know, you grew, that you grew up with alopecia and I know you have done TED Talks about what that's been like, um, you know, writing Homecoming Queens about chronic illness, family law being uh, you know, something that's kind of all round uh, advocating. What's, how significant has that been for you? Um, it's been really important because I have always gone into writing wanting to make stories that I would have needed or wanted to see when I was younger and or going through um, similar things. So my focus is always sort of championing stories that you don't see but are really important. Um, and I think for me, the aha moment with writing was when I was in grade 12 and I, I had a really great English teacher and she sort of identified that I was a bit of an English nerd and I was really interested in doing more. So she sort of introduced me to all these books that she loved growing up and um, she gave me a copy of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte and I remember reading that um, and being quite blown away because I really connected to the character in a way that I hadn't connected with characters in the past. I'd always just read for enjoyment or to pass the time or for entertainment. 
Um, but this was the first time where I had an experience with a with a piece of writing where I was like, I feel um, changed as a result and I feel quite seen and understood. And I thought it was really amazing that it was written by someone centuries ago and it was set in a world that's completely different to mine. Um, so for me, writing is an attempt to give a little part of that to someone else as well. Um, yeah, and, and for me it's fulfilling because I'm creating something that hasn't, well, everything's been done before, but creating something from my unique perspective or the unique perspective of a character that someone hasn't seen before. Are you seeing more opportunity to be able to do that, you know, professionally and in a supported way in Australia over the last few years or do you still feel like it's like pushing shit uphill? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think <clears throat> certain organisations are doing really amazing jobs and actively creating new initiatives and actively um, seeking out new work by people from diverse backgrounds. So I think especially in the last couple of years it's changed a lot. Um, I think in terms of the screen industry it's it's still quite a battle because um, the folks who are in power, um, they, you know, you commission work that you respond to and can relate to and, and feel comfortable with. And often you sort of see the same stories being told just in different ways, by, but by the same faces. Um, so, so I think in the screen industry, it's a bit more difficult. I think in the theatre world, it's, it's changing a lot more rapidly. Um, but there's, there's pressure in both industries, which I think is going to lead to a lot more significant change in the next couple of years. Right. What do you see as being the way forward? Um, I think the way that we're going now is great um, in terms of there being more initiatives and, and people actively going out to change things, especially those people who are in positions where they can change things. I think there probably needs to be more training in terms of, um, you know, commissioning editors and dramaturgs and development executives because people aren't going to take up those jobs if they haven't, you know, first had the training and then had the opportunity. Yeah. How has your personal concept of success or the success of your projects changed over, say, the last four or five or six years? Um, I think I'm a very goals-driven person and that's been good in a lot of ways but also detrimental in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm the type of person want, who once something is done or a project is done, I'm just like, great, that's done, moving on to the next thing and I don't really reflect on what I've achieved. So, you know, and that means that often you'll reach a goal and you won't necessarily be satisfied. You're just sort of reaching for the next thing. And I think um, something that's been really helpful is when, I think it was years ago now, I was chatting to my brother about his notion of success and he was telling me about when he submitted his PhD and he'd dedicated his life to it for years and years and he just afterwards just felt totally adrift um, and didn't really know what the next step was. And for him, that made him realise that when it came to creative work, it's it's more like the joy of the process and 
the the fact that you are so privileged that you can make work um, and in a lot of cases be paid for it. Um, So for me now, it's about, you know, success is the fact that I get to make work and that um, I'm in control of the process and that each project's different. So it's more enjoying um, the development of something and then seeing it come to fruition, but also just recognising what it's taken you to get there. Um, So I think that stops that what sort of at least um, halts that feeling of dissatisfaction because you're constantly just um, feeling that sense of gratitude and and just enjoying what you're doing. Yeah, you're more present to the experience as opposed to the end game. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And you spent a bit of time overseas recently? Yeah, um, Corey and I went to LA for five weeks um, from October to September to October. Um, so we went, we actually went to see Beyonce and Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> so we bought those tickets before we actually booked our flights. Right. <laughs> um, so that was the reason, but we also just went um, for work and for general meetings and to, to seek out representation in the US and just creating more connections with production companies and creatives over there. Um, and I've got a fair few friends who live there now, so it was good to get a sense of the city from the locals' point of view as opposed to more of a tourist. Sure. What was the, yeah. what was the vibe in terms of, uh, you know, your, the, the possibility of starting to make a, an international career like? Yeah, it's, I think everyone has a similar experience when they go to LA and it, it really just feels like the land of opportunity and anything is possible, um, which is inspiring in the sense that when you get back to Australia, it's like you feel really motivated to keep doing more work. Um, and LA's interesting because, you know, everyone is so on the ball and it can be quite transactional in the sense that everyone's treated well because you know in the next year someone's assistant could be an executive yeah um so everything's sort of shifting and it's very fast moving um so that was exciting and it was it was cool to get a sense of what it might be like to live there as as a professional um if if it's something i want to do in the next couple of years Awesome. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thanks for, uh, for jumping on the call. We always end our conversations with the same question on an upward note. Well, hopefully an upward note. The question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Yeah. Um, as in a, just silly as a person? However you would choose to interpret <laughs> the question. Um, I think what makes me silly is... Um, the work keeps me constantly silly because you spend so much time alone that you forget what is socially acceptable. (laughs) And so I'll often be making up my own songs and like singing them to my cat and then just trying to get in exercise as I'm working. So I'll just be doing stupid dances around the house in between um, (laughs) typing stuff out. Yeah, so I think I'm just innately a silly person and that that transfers to the work and the process. Yeah. And I think that's, I think it's important to uh, have that kind of thread through your work. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Thanks so much, Michelle. No worries. Thanks, Alistair.